Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. 1 Corinthians 14.26 Oh, that is perfect. Maybe a little more straightened, just a little, just brief. Perfect. Thank you so much, Davina. That was amazing. <laughs> yes, give it up for Davina, our amazing production team. Well, good morning again, everyone. My name is Chandler Stevens. We are continuing this morning in a series on Corinthians, on the letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. This morning, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 14. So if you have a Bible, take it out, open it up to 1 Corinthians 14. You can use the Bible app on your phone. If you need a Bible and you're in the room, we've got stacks of them behind the chairs there. You can go grab one and you can keep it. How good is that, huh? 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul is talking largely here about spiritual gifts. I wonder when I say spiritual gifts, what you think of. I'm aware that in a room this size and with people joined online, there's very likely a large spectrum of experiences and beliefs on spiritual gifts. Maybe some people go, I don't know anything about spiritual gifts. Maybe some would say, I don't even think they exist or they're real. Others might go, I operate in spiritual gifts. I want to tell you a little bit about my faith journey because this has been a journey for me in this area. Um, I grew up in this church. I've been going to this church, well, I'm almost 26 years old, but I've been going to this church for almost 27. And you're like, Chandler, your math is not very good. No, listen to this. My parents started bringing me to Allendale Wesleyan Church, now Lifestream, when I was not even born yet, in the womb. So as my body was being formed, so was my Wesleyan theology. How good was that? I was taking in all these messages and these amazing worship songs. And rumor has it that when my mom and dad went to the hospital to see if their firstborn would be a boy or a girl, the doctor said, you know, the results came back inconclusive, but I can tell you it's going to be a Wesleyan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my first words out of the womb were not mom or dad. I'm pretty sure they were entire sanctification, right? The words of John Wesley. <laughs> but I'm a Wesleyan through and through, born and raised actually in this church. All jokes aside, I love this denomination. I love what God is doing through this movement of his church. I love what the Wesleyan church is all about and how God is working in and through it. After high school then, I had planned to go to a Wesleyan university. I'd been accepted in, had almost a full-ride scholarship, and so as you can imagine, I was shocked and confused when all of a sudden I felt this call from God, clearer than any call I've ever felt in my life, to go to Bible college in a Pentecostal megachurch that I'd never heard of, really. I was shocked and blown away, and I thought, God, this can't be right. I've got my whole life planned out in this kind of Wesleyan track. What's going on? On top of that, Pentecostals? Aren't those those weird people? Like, I'm thinking about Holy Spirit-filled, baptism of fire, speaking in tongues, waving flags, and don't they, like, handle snakes and stuff? I am not about snakes, God. I want nothing to do with that. Those Pentecostals, those are weird people. <laughs> 
So I was shocked when I went to that church and it wasn't weird at all. That church didn't feel weird, actually it felt like home. I found that those Pentecostal believers, man, they had a real relationship with Jesus. They radically loved their Savior and they were passionate about him. They were encouraging and generous and they had deep theological roots and on top of that, they operated in spiritual gifts, but it wasn't weird. In fact, it built up the faith of everyone around them, including myself. That church didn't feel weird, it felt like home. And so I spent four out of the next five years of my life in this Pentecostal church through Bible college. I think often when we think about spiritual gifts, we can get weirded out, yeah? Maybe like I did before. I came, though, to love the words of one of the pastors at this church. Her name is Christine Kane. She said, she kind of famously said, the Holy Spirit's not weird. People are weird. (laughs) And if you know a weird person, you just said amen, maybe just in your mind. Holy Spirit's not weird. People are weird, right? So now I'm kind of this like, I don't know, maybe like denominational hybrid. Like I'm still a Wesleyan at the core and I got this Pentecostal thing too. I'm like a Pentecostian or something. I don't know, a Wesley-costal. I'm some sort of a thing. So I tell you all of that to let you know that this morning as we look at spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, that's kind of the lens through which I'm approaching this of my theology and my experience. Um, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that spiritual gifts still exist. I believe the words of Hebrews 13, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't think the Holy Spirit has stopped working through his people yet. And yet, I want you to know If you approach this through a different theological lens or set of experiences than I do, that's okay. Because spiritual gifts are not a salvation issue. The belief of the Wesleyan church in mind too is that spiritual gifts, including like speaking in tongues, they might be an evidence of faith in Jesus or salvation, but they're not the cause of it. In other words, you don't have to speak in tongues or prophesy or like raise someone from the dead to be like, yeah, their faith is real. Praise God for that, right? I would be in trouble. (laughs) But you don't have to agree with me completely. I believe that you can still take something away from this message. Um, Two days ago, three days ago, a high school student texted me. I do high school ministry in this church. And he texted me and the message basically read, hey, um, the other day, the YouVersion Bible app on my phone was opened up, uh, not of my own doing, and I looked at it, and it was open to 1 Corinthians 14. This was three days ago. And he said, I read it through, and I read about speaking in tongues and prophecy and women speaking in church, and I just don't get it. I've been reading it for a week now, and I'm really confused. I've been praying about it, and I have no answers. Can you please help me? Again, that was three days ago. That was Friday. And I replied to him and said, are you aware that that's exactly what I'm preaching on this Sunday? Like, I literally have like 30 plus hours of study into that exact passage. And he replied and said, I had no idea. And I said, do you think that sounds like a coincidence? And this high school student said, no, I think that was God. And I said, good job. We're doing something right in our youth ministry here at Livestream. (laughs) All that to say... Be expectant, because I believe not just that Holy Spirit still works, but I believe the Holy Spirit wants to work in this service 
in you. So, let's pray again as we begin this morning. God, I thank you so much that you are here. I thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, I know that you want to work. Would you use me? Would you use my words? God, help this not to be just information. Help this to be transformation in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Awesome. Well, if uh, maybe this is your first time uh, here, I want to give you a quick recap into the series on the Corinthians. Like we said, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul spent a year and a half of his life planting this church, so he's familiar with these people. If I could describe the city of Corinth with two words, it would be influential and immoral. Think about like the prosperity and the trade of Silicon Valley mixed with the immorality of Vegas and you've got something like Corinth. This city is kind of a big deal and they're also, this church is messed up. These Christians in this church that Paul planted, now that Paul's left, they're forming cliques around certain leaders and preachers. They're getting drunk off communion wine. They're taking each other to court and suing each other in front of non-believers. Like this is a mess. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to correct some of the sin behavior in this church. Because who knows, you get that group of people together and a church service is probably not gonna go super smoothly. Most of the problems that they're having revolve around the use of spiritual gifts. And so Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 14. But before we get there, we need to look at how Paul sets this up. He sets this up in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Skip to verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, he's saying the Holy Spirit works to build up everyone, the church. In two weeks, Pastor Jim is going to go on and he's going to dive more deeply into 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm not going to go into it, but I am going to write down the spiritual gifts that Paul lists. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then he goes on to list. To one is given a word of wisdom. To another is given a word of knowledge. To another is given faith. To another is given the gift of healing. To another, miracles. To one, prophecy. To another is given speaking in tongues. To one is given discernment between spirits. And then another, the interpretation of tongues. So Paul says, these are the spiritual gifts. The two that Paul is going to address specifically are prophecy and speaking in tongues. But first, he goes on in chapter 13, and he lets the Corinthians know all of these spiritual gifts, remember, they're for the common good, but they're nothing without love. In chapter 13, he writes, 
If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith that can move the mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying here, he's like, here's all these spiritual gifts, but without a foundation of love, they are useless. Don't judge my heart, okay? My spiritual gift is not art. That was, that was pretty good, huh? Yeah, not bad, right? But he's saying these have to be based on a foundation of love. If they're not, they're actually annoying, like a clanging gong or a cymbal. This is not good. You see, the problem in the Corinthian church is not a lack of spiritual gifts. They've got that. What they've got is a lack of, somebody say it, love, right? And then it goes on in chapter 13. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. You probably have heard those verses in a wedding format when someone's getting married. Those verses are great in that setting, but did you know that they were actually written in reference to the use of spiritual gifts? Next time you hear those in a wedding, keep that in mind. So this is the problem with the Corinthian church. They lack love. In other words, they have the spiritual gifts, but they're being selfish in their use of spiritual gifts. What was happening was that the Corinthians all wanted to be heard. If you would have walked in, it was like they wanted to show off how spiritual they were, so they were all speaking in tongues at the same time, yelling over each other, trying to be heard, prophesying and interrupting each other. There was no order, it was chaos. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians 14 largely as a call to order in the church. As you walked in or tuned into this live stream service this morning, you, you expected some order, right? You knew that this service was going to start at 9.30 a.m., and you know that it's going to end at 1 p.m. as soon as I'm done preaching. <laughs> I'll do my best, guys. But you expected order. If you would have walked into the Church of Corinth's 9.30 service, it would have been chaos. You would have been like, who's preaching in this place? Man, everyone's yelling, and what language are they even speaking? This is insane. Like, if you were visiting that church, church shopping, you would have left there. You would have left a one-star Google review and been like, I'm never going back to that church. That is absolute chaos. So Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 14. Turn there with me. And there's a lot to unpack here, so I'm going to kind of jump around verses. I encourage you to go and read the entirety of this on your own at home. Verses 1 to 2, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Paul starts off and he says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. He's talking about speaking in tongues. The first time we see this gift of tongues is in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Jesus has just uh, rose from the dead, and before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers, he said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them this command. He says, stay in Jerusalem and wait. 
So in Acts chapter two, we find the disciples waiting in an upper room, just waiting for the Holy Spirit. At the same time, there's this festival called Pentecost going on, and Jews from all over the world who speak all different languages have gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. And here's where we hear about this gift in Acts chapter two. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So Jesus' disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, go out of this upper room into the crowd that's there for Pentecost and begin to preach the gospel. And they were amazed because this gospel was heard in all of these different languages from around the world. That's the first time we hear about this gift. So the first form of this gift of speaking in tongues is it's, it's expressed by speaking in earthly language which is unknown to the speaker. In the original purpose is evangelism. The gospel was heard in all of these languages. Um, I have two brothers. They're gonna put a picture of them up there. These two brothers were adopted from Russia. Here's them, I think 11 or 12 years ago when my parents adopted them with my dad. And before they were adopted, these two boys, Ethan on the left, CJ on the right, were flown into Missouri with another large group of Russian orphans. Uh, parents from all over the US who were going to adopt these Russian children gathered in this small town in Missouri. And part of this plan for these orphans while they were there in Missouri for 10 days was that they would attend a VBS program. The plan was they found this young married couple, the husband's name was, uh, let me get this right, his name was Igor, and he's South American. So his first language was Spanish, he spoke English, but then he also spoke Russian because he had missionary parents. So the plan was that Igor would come in and every day he would teach these Russian orphans and he would give the message in this VBS setting. His wife is American and she was gonna lead the crafts and lead the games and so they go about this routine for the VBS program and on the last day, they invite in all of these prospective American parents. They had these Bibles that were actually in Russian that they were going to give to these Russian orphans and they were gonna extend the gospel message. They were gonna end this VBS by giving a call to salvation and Igor was gonna preach the message. That day, shortly before that moment, Igor's wife, his American wife who speaks no Russian, came up to him and said, I feel impressed deeply in my spirit by the Holy Spirit that I'm supposed to preach this message not you. And so he went with it and he said, okay, great. She didn't speak Russian, so he said, you speak the message and I'll interpret and translate it to these kids. I said, great, sounds like a plan. So she begins preaching the message. He's interpreting all the Russian orphans in this room along with my parents and all these other parents are gathered listening to this exchange. And then mid-sentence, as she's preaching in English, her words and syllables begin to change and she begins to speak in fluent Russian. Everyone in this room, the Russian orphans, hear the gospel message in their own language. The Holy Spirit fell heavily in this room. My parents say that everyone just began to cry because they so deeply felt the presence of God. In that moment, not only did these Russian orphans hear the gospel in Russian, 
but many of them gave their lives to Christ. My mom walked up to this woman afterwards and said, that was amazing. I didn't know you spoke Russian. And she said, I don't. In fact, she cannot speak Russian anymore to this day. It was like a modern-day reenactment of Pentecost. That's the first expression of speaking in tongues. The second, then, would be an expression of a language which is unknown to man, speaking a heavenly language. Paul, in that love chapter 13, writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, and he goes on, the second would be of angels, heavenly language, right? Now, I don't really know what kind of speaking in tongues is happening in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14. Doesn't really matter. Here's what Paul is saying. No one understands you, right? He's saying when you speak in tongues, new people are walking into the church and they're going, these Christians are crazy. Like, no one can understand what you're saying. It's not beneficial to the church. So in verse three of chapter 14, he writes, so the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up themselves. In other words, speaking in tongues is good for your own faith but the one who prophesies edifies and builds up the church. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. So he seems to be saying, hey, speaking in tongues is good, but in church, prophecy is better. So what's prophecy? A lot of this book, the Bible, is prophetic literature. You might think of prophecy and you might think of the Old Testament prophets. You might think of Elijah or you might think of Jeremiah or Deborah who brought the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel. Or maybe you think about uh, prophecies about the future, a lot of which were fulfilled in the person of Jesus and some are yet to come. But there's also individual prophecy. Sometimes God speaks to an individual and gives a word for someone else. And sometimes, like it seems in the Corinthian church, that's a warning. Um, I remember in Bible college, we had this teacher named Margaret Stunt. And she became a bit of a legend because the story went, she was walking down the hall one day in between classes and this young male student, uh, college student, came walking across the hall and she stopped and looked at him and said, stop watching pornography. You've been watching it on your own in secret. No one knows about it, but you need to stop in Jesus' name. And then in Margaret Stunt fashion, she said, love you, so does God, and continued walking on her way, right? Sometimes prophecies are a warning. And sometimes they're an encouragement about the future. Allison and I, um, probably 2017, 2018, we got a Sunday off of ministry. We didn't have to do anything in church. And so sometimes we like to visit other churches when that's the case. So we drove to this church about 30 or so minutes away. We'd never been here before. And I remember in this church, there were three blocks of seating. There were kind of two wings, and then there's this large section in the middle. There are probably 200, 250 people in this church, and so we kind of fly under the radar, get there um, about the time worship is about to start. We sit in the back middle of the church. Worship is great, and the MC comes out, and he says, hey, 
we have the great privilege today of having a guest with us. He says, we're gonna hear the message from a guest prophet. And I thought, is that still a thing? Like, you can just be a prophet? Is that like on his business card? This is crazy, I didn't know what to expect. There's a guest prophet. And I remember, it was like, he had a message, he would preach, but then I distinctly remember he was preaching and then he stopped and he went, there's a firefighter in this room and God has a word for you. Would you stand up? And sure enough, off to the side, this firefighter like kind of hesitantly stands up. And this man delivers this word to him. And I remember watching him just be deeply impacted. And then he sat back down and he just kept going on with his message. And then at another point of the service, he said, if there's anyone in this room with a paper Bible, would you please stand up? And me and Allison looked down, and to our dismay, we both had paper Bibles in our laps. And we're like, oh my word, what do we do? This is church, we can't lie, we have to stand up. But we thought, surely, like a lot of people brought their Bibles to church, right? If you brought your Bible to church, wave it around a second this morning. Oh my word, you guys are so much more spiritual than this church we were in. <laughs> we stood up. And I kid you not, we were the only two people in this middle row. There were three other people in the whole church. And this guy starts going through and prophesying over each of the people in this church. He gets to me and Allison, and I remember, never met this man. He did not know that we were in Bible college together. He did not know about our dreams of doing ministry as a couple. He said, began to prophesy and speak over our future in ministry. And he said, you're gonna take this word and like the feeding of the 5,000, you're gonna break it and feed it to the multitudes. We were so greatly encouraged in that moment. But what if we would have walked into that service and everyone just would have been crazily speaking in tongues and yelling over each other? Our experience would have been very, very different, wouldn't it? And so Paul is saying, in church, it's better if you prophesy than if you speak in tongues. He goes on, verse 13, and he says, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, so what do I do? I'll pray with my spirit and also with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit and also with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who's now put in the position of an inquirer, other, other words, a new person in church, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they don't know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. And Paul says something interesting. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Go to verse 23, he says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The thing about prophecy is that it builds up the body even if it's convicting. So, Paul has now educated them on these spiritual gifts. Now he's going to lay some ground rules. Because remember, this church is in chaos. He's saying, this is how this is going to work. He's planted this church, so he's got some authority to speak into it. He's going to address three groups of people who seem to be causing division in this church. The first is these people speaking in tongues. The second is these people prophesying who are interrupting each other. And the third is women speaking in church who are causing division. They're interrupting and asking questions. In verse 26, he writes, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? 
When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Get this. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone else must interpret. If there is no interpreter, get this, to the people speaking in tongues, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now he moves on to the prophets. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. He moves on to the prophets and says, if you're causing division, be quiet. For you can all prophesy in turn, orderly, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. I love this, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord. Now we get to maybe one of the most controversial and divisive, uh, potentially divisive pieces of text in the scripture. Paul writes, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Everybody just take a deep breath. Oh my word, you think, you feel nervous right now? You're looking at me up on stage preaching this, right? Here's what I think he's saying. If you read this at face value, I could easily see how you would take this and go, a woman should never speak in church. That's disgraceful. They should just be quiet. But I have to remind you, this Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. And in fact, this letter to the Corinthians is written to a specific church in a specific context with specific problems. I don't think this can possibly be a universal mandate Paul is putting out that women should never speak in church. I don't think that can be what he means. Here's why. Literally two pages before in the text, chapter 11, he's addressing men and women in the Corinthian church, men and women, who are prophesying and praying. He assumes that that is what's happening. I think that to say that he's declaring this universal ban on women speaking is to say that he's contradicting himself in his own letter. On top of that, as you read a little further, he's addressing women, but he says, if you've got a question, you should ask your husbands. So he's addressing this specific group of married women, their wives. You see, what was happening in the culture was that women were not allowed to be educated. Although the men, the Jewish men, were given a formal religious education. So what it seems is happening is I'm up here preaching and women all throughout the congregation are just standing up and going, hey, stop a minute, I have a question. And they're dividing the service and Paul is saying, hey, just go home and ask your husbands who have had the education, they probably have the answer. It seems like he's saying, this is not worth causing division in the church. We need order in the church because God is a God of order. If you take a step back and look even at a bigger picture of the context of the Bible. Paul, in another letter, I don't, I don't think he's saying women can't learn either, which that would have been a bit um, countercultural, right? He's just saying women should learn at home. Don't cause division in the church. In another letter, Paul says, he, he talks about this woman named Priscilla. And he calls her his co-worker in the gospel in Romans 16. He says, there's a church that meets in her house. He then talks about this woman named Junia in Romans 16, calls her an apostle in Christ. 
I think what's happening is Paul is going, hey, if you're speaking in tongues and causing division, be quiet in the church. Hey, if you're prophesying and causing division, be quiet in the church. Hey, if you're a woman in the Corinthian church and you're causing division, be quiet in the church. He's calling for order, and I think he learned this from Jesus. Jesus was kind of countercultural too, wasn't he? I remember Jesus going out of his way to go to a well in Samaria where there's a sinful woman and he has conversations with her, a woman has deep theological chats with her. I remember Jesus in a house with two women named Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from the greatest rabbi to ever exist and Martha's preparing the food and she says, Jesus, put Mary in her place. Tell her not to learn, but to come do the chores. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen what's better. Once Jesus rose from the dead, who are the first people he appeared to? A group of women. And then he tells them the first ever case in human history of hearing the gospel message. And then he says, go and preach this to who? The disciples, the ones who are gonna be the church leaders. I think that Jesus entrusted women a lot more than maybe even the churches today do. Jesus placed a lot of belief in women, so I don't think Paul's saying women should never speak in church. Does that make sense? I praise God for the women of faith in my life. So in conclusion, Paul writes in verses 39 and 40, therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I don't think Paul's saying don't speak in tongues. I don't think he's saying don't prophesy. I don't think he's saying women don't speak in church. I think he's saying do it in love. Do it in an orderly way. In closing here, Thank you, by the way, as I'm preaching. No one interrupted me. No one started just like speaking in tongues crazily over each other. No one interrupted me and started prophesying. Thank you for that. I believe that Lifestream Church is a church of great order. And God blesses that. And I'm believing for the Holy Spirit to break out in our church. I'm believing he'll impart spiritual gifts that will build up the body. My prayer for you is the same as Paul to the Corinthians, that you would eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. It's not weird. Finally, I think maybe what's the application here, right? Obviously, no one's speaking in tongues. No one's yelling prophecy. I don't think we're selfish in our worship, at least at face value. Although, as I was preparing this, I just felt a warning that selfishness can still creep into our church, especially in America where we're so focused on consumerism. What do I mean? You get to church and all of the parking spaces close to the building are filled up. You have to park way in the back. God forbid you have to walk 60 seconds across the parking lot. This is awful. Oh my word. What if you were to get to church early, the parking spaces are open, but you leave them for someone else and you intentionally park at the back and that 60 second walk, you pray over the people who are going to be in the church? Oh my word, worship just wasn't good this morning. Praise God, we're not worshiping you. <laughs> we come here to worship God. It's not about you. Ah, oh, the preaching, I just didn't get anything out of it. What if instead you spent your whole week praying, God, give me a word to encourage someone else in this church? Oh man, no one greeted me when I came in the door. What if you came early and stayed late and greeted everyone in your row? Made sure that they felt welcome. 
This may not be super relevant in that we're all speaking in tongues and prophesying over each other, but guys, selfishness can still creep into our church. Let's not let that happen, amen? Amen. Would you stand up with me? I just wanna close in prayer. And maybe if you've never met Jesus before, maybe today's your day. If so, I'd encourage you to speak with someone. Get alone and pray and ask that God, Jesus would come into your heart. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and then tell someone about it. Would you close your eyes? I'm gonna pray over this service. Oh, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the way that you work in and through individuals and the way that you work in and through your church. God, we, Lifestream Church, want to be used by you. I thank you for the incredible work that you've done through this body through the centuries, God. This community of faith has been a staple, God, taking ground for you for years. Holy Spirit, we want to see more of you. In our personal lives, would you move? God, we don't want to wait until heaven to see if our faith is real. God, we want you to move in and through us today and this week. Holy Spirit, would you work through this church body that we may reach more and more people for you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen.